Stand as you are able, please, for the reading of tonight's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Leslie, for reading our word tonight. Welcome to week three of this sermon series that we have begun called Kindred Hearts. If you have been following along with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we are um, concluding actually a year-long sermon series where I like to call them the peas of Jesus. We talked about the power of Jesus. We talked about uh, the prophecies of Jesus. We talked about the parables of Jesus. We talked about the passion of Jesus during Lent leading up to Easter. And now we're concluding that series with the people of Jesus. And we, we think about the people of Jesus, we think about the call stories of Jesus, the call stories of the people who follow Jesus, the people who call themselves Christian, the people who follow the way that Jesus taught. And through our many various calls, we share, we are united in a singular call to be God's hands and feet in the world, right? And so that is what makes us kindred hearts, Um, not just now, but throughout the ages. We are connected to the saints that have gone before us and the saints that will come ahead. So as what Davis says is uh, what holds us together as the body of Christ, it's not our ecclesial structure, right? It's not the way that we enforce policies, and it's not an intellectual assent to correct doctrine or um, incorrect doctrine, but what holds us together as the body of Christ is a shared mission, a common purpose. And so week one, we talked about the Great Commission. That is where that shared purpose is revealed. When Jesus tells us, gathers all the disciples, gathers all those who have believed in him and followed him, who have witnessed his resurrection, and he says, okay, y'all, here's what you do. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and remember that I'm always with you. And then last week, we studied the story of Jesus appearing on the beach after the resurrection to the disciples gathered there, and we heard this kind of call story of Peter. And Peter was given the chance to declare his love for Jesus three times to make up for the three times that he had denied Jesus before the cross. So Peter was being recalled. It was this kind of secondary call story where he was being called back into himself. You remember Peter thought that he was, he didn't know what to do. He thought maybe he would go back to his old way of life. Maybe I'll just pick up fishing again, I guess. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do now. And Jesus recalled him and said, you do what I told you to do. Um, You are still who I called you to be, and I'm still here. Things have not changed. (laughs) Peter needed that reminder. So today we get to hear the first part of Peter's call story. And the other, uh, his, Peter's brother, Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So we are studying this particular call story from the perspective of Mark. Now, here we are, the very first chapter of Mark. Here is what has happened so far. 
Jesus has already been identified as the Christ. He's been baptized in the river Jordan. The spirit has declared him the son of God. He's been tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and John the Baptist has been arrested. That's the first 15 verses. We are still in chapter one. You see, Mark doesn't play around in his storytelling. Mark is not flowery or overly poetic. Mark jumps right into the action to tell us what happened. He doesn't spend time diving into the genealogy of Jesus or the history of the Davidic line like Matthew and Mark do. And he doesn't spend time talking about the theology of the Messiah like John does. Instead, he wants to answer this question, and he wants to answer it immediately. You'll see that word again and again in Mark, immediately, immediately. Who is calling us, and what is the call? Now, I think it's important to cast a little bit of a historical context for what's happening here in this first call story of Mark, because if we don't understand the way things were done in Jesus' time, in that first century in the Middle East, then we may miss some of the power of the story. So Jesus, the rabbi, rabbi meaning teacher, Jesus, the leader, he is pulling together his lead team. He is starting to build his foundation for his ministry. He is calling those first students to his side. Remember, disciple means student. He's calling students to his side to come and study with him. He even says, follow me that I may teach you, that I may train you, that I may show you how to fish for people. So he's very clearly occupying a teaching role, a training role, a mentor role. And we know that throughout the gospels, the disciples call him rabbi again and again. We know that rabbi means teacher, master. But remember that at this time, this was before the destruction of the temple. So rabbinic Judaism, as we know it today, didn't exist yet. Rabbis were not formally trained um, individuals. They were just called teachers. In the time of Jesus, it was highly favored to become a scholar of the law. So Pharisees were a sect of this kind of academically rigorous world. And if you were a young Jewish boy, it would be highly favored for you to enter into that world. And so if you wanted that path, you would have to spend hours upon hours studying large sections of the Torah so that you could memorize them, so that if you were ever out in the world and you came across a rabbi that you might want to study with, you could impress them by demonstrating your knowledge of the Torah, standing up, reciting what you had memorized, and if you impressed them enough, they might invite you into their circle. They might invite you to come study with them. And that was your entryway into becoming a scholar of the law. Kind of like how we do today, right? Like if you want to go to Vanderbilt Divinity School or Duke or Harvard Law, um, you kind of have to prove by your application essay and whatever else, your interviews, that you're ready for that type of rigorous study. But you see, that's not what's actually happening in this call story with Jesus, is it? Peter and Andrew and James and John, they're not trying to impress Jesus. They didn't seek him out. They aren't competing for a spot in his class. They are simply at their day job. They are doing the thing that they have been trained to do. They're not young Jewish boys, they're grown men. You see, they already have jobs, quite good jobs, actually. Galilee was famous for its fishing industry, so it was quite plausible that um, you could own a very successful fishing business. It was like an artisan kind of independent job, occupation. 
We see in these verses that maybe James and John had a slightly more successful business than Peter and Andrew because James and John, they had their own boat, right? And they had this intergenerational staff, they're working with their dad, and they can even afford to hire day laborers. They afford hired help. And so then we see that Simon and Andrew, they may or may not have been on a boat. They may have been standing on the shore, casting this special net into the ocean. But either way, fishing was not this blue collar kind of lower class work that we tend to associate it with today. They were settled. Simon even had his own house. He was caring for his wife and his mother-in-law. So the point is that these two sets of brothers, they were not academically elite and they were not impoverished. They were just regular old Joes. They were just doing a regular day's work. Now Mark doesn't share whether or not they had known of Jesus before this encounter, but John does. John tells us that John the Baptist actually introduced Andrew, so presumably Andrew and Simon had been following John the Baptist. John the Baptist introduces Andrew to Jesus. Andrew spends the day with Jesus to the extent that when he comes home to tell Simon how his experience was, he said, we have found the Messiah, which presumably means they had been looking for a Messiah. Have you ever heard of that saying, you find what you're looking for? I think Charlie Chaplin said, you'll never find a rainbow if you're always looking down. And someone else famous, who knows who, said, you can't find what you want if you don't know what you're looking for. In the spiritual life, we often find what we are looking for. If we are looking for signs of impending doom, or we are looking for the sinfulness of humanity, we are looking for stories of chaos and destruction, okay, open your eyes, those are easy to find, right? We'll find them, they're easy. And if you're looking for signs of hope and signs of resurrection and signs of new life, like the ladies of healing housing, you'll find those stories too. It's both and. We find what we're looking for. And if we're looking for God, God's very own divine self tells us in the scriptures again and again that God is ready to be found by us. Unlike Waldo, God is not hiding from us. God is leaping out continually, begging us to be willing to see. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me whenever you seek with me with all of your heart. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus repeats this idea, says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. So we find what we're looking for. What are you looking for today? What did you spend time looking for? What are you looking for in this season of your life? If you can identify what you're looking for, chances are better that you'll find it. Now, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they may not have been out actively looking for the Messiah. But we can guess, because they were Jewish men of this time period, they had been watching and waiting for a sign. They had been waiting for a sign of the changing times. They were faithful Jewish men. They believed the promises of God in the scriptures. They believed this God who said that God would free them from iniquity. He would loose the chains of injustice. He would set the oppressed free. 
And remember, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they're members of an occupied state. They are in occupied territory in their own land. And they believed that this God would come and set them free. So they were looking for a savior, a Messiah who had been promised to lead them into freedom. But while they were looking so hard, do you think that they ever thought this Messiah would find them? I mean, them personally, like ask them, these regular brothers, these regular Joes, no formal religious training, already settled in life, that he would seek them out and ask them to become part of his inner circle. It'd be like if I was out looking for the next great president of the United States, you know, looking at the senators, looking at the House of Congress, this one might be it, this one might be it. And then that person called me up and said, Shelby, will you serve on my cabinet? (laughs) I have no experience in the political realm. No, I'd be a horrible fit for that. Absolutely not. (laughs) It'd be so odd. I mean, I imagine that these brothers might have felt similarly at first. But Jesus didn't call them because of their professional experience. And he didn't call them because they volunteered for the job. He didn't even call them because they had been looking and waiting for him. He called them simply because he chose them. Now here's where I think we as Christians, we misread this call story. We put ourselves in the place of the disciples out on the fishing boats and we think, wow, If I saw Jesus walking by, I would be so convicted by his power and his authority. I would, I just couldn't help but follow him. Just like the disciples, I would throw my nets down and I would follow this man. But that's not what the text is indicating. That's not what the text is saying. You see, it wasn't that the brothers necessarily saw any special quality in Jesus that compelled them to drop their nets it might have been the other way around. Jesus saw something in them. These regular Joes that they didn't see in themselves. So Jesus had the vision for who they could be. Jesus shared that vision with them. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. That vision of who they could be was what was convicting and compelling Jesus said, I will transform you into who I need you to be. So you see, it's not what we see in Jesus that compels us to follow him, it's what Jesus sees in us, in you and in me. Now this reading might be unfamiliar, but it's actually pretty in line with the history of the Hebrew texts, the Hebrew people. We hear in Deuteronomy, they were not chosen because they were the best. They were not chosen because they were the cleverest or the strongest. They were chosen because God saw them and loved them. Deuteronomy 7 says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So Jesus picks up that thread. And in John, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, back when I was in seminary, and I took an internship in Texas one summer, 
So I was interning at this church and the pastor there at the end of every worship service would say the same thing for the benediction. And it was just so regular and so routine that it became really ingrained in the congregation. We learned to expect it. And this is what he said. He would say, go forth, may you leave this place, certain of the knowledge that God loves you exactly the way you are. And God loves you way too much to keep you that way. Because of Christ's call on our lives, we are being transformed into new people. We are invited each day, every day, to become like Christ, to imitate Christ in all that we say and in all that we do. But it's just that. It's an invitation. We don't actually have to say yes. We don't even really have to respond. I mean, too often we don't respond, right? When you hit, your head hits the pillow at night, how often are we thinking, in what ways did I answer the call today? In what ways did I follow the invitation to join Christ? Even as pastors, I don't think we think of it that way very often. We get busy, we get distracted. So that's one of the reasons we come to worship together as people regularly each week. We wanna be reminded of who we are. We wanna hear our stories, the people, the stories of our people. We wanna remember that we have this call on our hearts. Okay. I wanna share some good news about my friend, Jonathan, who is here, right back there. Surprise, you didn't know I was gonna talk about you tonight, did you? Jonathan is on staff here at Brentwood United Methodist. Uh, He is on our maintenance team. Um, You need anything, Jonathan's your guy. Even if you don't need anything, he's gonna come and check if you need anything. He is always on top of everything, ready to help at the drop of a hat. Uh, And I love him for that, but that's not all why I love him. Jonathan is also, did you know, a pastor and a preacher, not here at Brentwood, but at his own home church. And Jonathan, by God's grace, reaching out to him, accepted the invitation. He was born anew by water and the Spirit, and his life is visibly different now than it was before. Not just in what he says he believes, but in the way he acts towards all people. doesn't matter who you are. Jonathan's going to love you. When Jonathan is here at work and someone comes into the church and they need financial assistance, He is there at that desk helping them find grocery cards or gift cards or gas cards. If someone comes in and they need a prayer warrior, Jonathan is right there on his knees praying with them. He wanders the halls and he sings hymns. His very presence is a continual reminder of God's love. He said yes to the invitation to follow Christ and he says yes every day. So my question for you tonight is, are you saying yes? Is your life a visible indication of Christ at work in you? Is your life a visible indication of love and of call? Are your decisions based on Christ's guidance or on your own expertise? Because if you're like me, you're sometimes guilty of trying to do it all by yourself. So my prayer is that we would let our need to control every outcome go, that we would truly drop our nets, that we would follow the one who calls us. 
because he sees us and he knows what we can be. I want to end tonight by reading one of my favorite poems. This is The Summer Day by the poet Mary Oliver. And in this poem, she captures what it means to pay attention to that voice that calls us into a newness of life. So if you're comfortable, I invite you to close your eyes, to hear these words, and to see what she's showing you. She writes, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in this grass and be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? So tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Friends, you have one wild and precious life, and Christ is calling you to do something with it. So pay attention and accept the invitation, because if you follow him, he'll show you the way, and he will make you into who he needs you to be. Amen and amen and amen.